even before the 67 referendum, we had a voice. It's always been here. It's never gone anywhere. It's been in this land. We want to be heard. Listen to us. Raising Peace is an alliance of more than 30 organisations that together are working to share ideas, knowledge and inspiration for a peaceful world. Welcome to this first Raising Peace podcast. This first episode presents First Nations elders talking about the most important moment for peace in Australia today, the voice to Parliament and the statement from the heart. They spoke at the 2022 Raising Peace Festival and as we approach the referendum on The Voice, we wanted to share their important thoughts. You'll be hearing from Adi Ali Golding, Pastor Raymond Eakin, Margaret Hepworth, Jeff Scott and Des Rogers, who is also hosting the event. Let's go first to Adi Ali for her acknowledgement of country. Thank you for having me here today. And to... Something that I do, uh, I love doing. I've done it for years. It's my finest journey that I've had since I started doing it. It was welcome and acknowledgements to the country. And it's always an honour for me. I, um, every time I used to go into wherever I'm going to say uh, acknowledgement to country, I always been held by the hand, by the elbow, if I was getting out of the transport before I went into where I was going to do Welcome to Country. And I knew that was the male spirit held my elbow and held me in to where I was supposed to go. Other times, it wasn't held, I wasn't held by the elbow. I had my hair pushed back and brushed back and I knew that was the female spirit of that homeland that guided me into where I was to do the acknowledgement to country. So I, I feel the spirits and I, that's one thing that I love doing. Taken to your places with the spirits of the homeland. So I'll start now with my, my words. I would like to acknowledge the Aurora peoples of the Gadigal homeland of the first traditional custodians of this land we are gathered on today. And whichever land that you are on at this moment in this program, the land was taken from them without permission or consent, and sadly affected their cultural lifestyle. But thank the big spirit by, by Annie. Thank him that they couldn't break or destroy their spirits, their spirituality. That's the main thing. That's the important thing that they can never take from us. And I would like to also gratefully pay my respect 
to the elders, both past and present. I would like also to extend this same respect to my Aboriginal and my straight, Torres Strait Islander and non-Aboriginal people who are present here too. And on behalf of my custodians, people, I will say with a pride, welcome, welcome, welcome. Protocol dictates that I need to, first of all, go to Auntie Ali, and then I'm gonna to go to Uncle um, Ray. And the, sim the simple question is, Auntie Ali, is why is the voice to parliament important to us as First Nations people? That voice, we've been waiting for this voice to be heard for a long, long, long time. And that's why it's so very important. And it's people like the Raising Peace, people getting together and wanting people to, to ask that same question. Why is the voice you know, so important so important to the Aboriginal people, to Parliament. I always thought to myself about being waiting so long to be heard. And there's been they've been deaf too long. And I think they're in their little locked up offices. And I wonder to myself, are the papers about us Aboriginal people in Parliament, as our papers are clean or have they got dust all over them? Because they didn't want no interest in knowing what we need and to listen to our voices and for us to let them know what we need for our people in this country. So it's very important for them to listen. That's all we can do is just ask, write letters. It's really stresses elders out today like myself. At this age, and knowing how long we waited for to hear our voices heard in Parliament and for them to do something about what our voices are speaking about, our needs, it's time. We need that support now from Parliament. We need it now. We want to be heard. Listen to us. You know, when I think about what happened uh, from the 60s up to when they started demonstrating hand, sea of hands, walking across the bridge, reconciliation there, all those things, it was very, very active in those days. We were speaking out. We were using a lot of energy. But what happened to that energy? So our people need to grab that energy back again, rise up with that same energy of the 60s. We got to rise up that, that, that same energy. Let us be heard. 
put our voices forward now and we can see where we go from there. To me, the 60 voices are important for me today. And that's what I'm hoping for and praying for, that this will be the voices now of us coming forward, having the spirit backing us and touching the soul of the prime minister now. That's what I think as an elder. Okay. So I'm going to pose the same question to you, Uncle Ray. Um, why is the voice to Parliament so important to us as First Nations people? We need to realise that we've never lost our voice. And it's 60,000 years old. And uh, even before the 67 referendum, we had a voice. It's always been here. It's never gone anywhere. It's been in this land. And even if this voice gets through, the voice will still be here. It's never going away. That's the first thing I wanted to say. Uh, and in terms of this voice here, it is a bit of a challenge. It's a, it's a David and Goliath situation for us because we're only 3% of the population. So we're now depending upon 97% of the population to say yes uh, in, in a yes vote. So that's, that's huge, big odds against us. And we don't, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to put my, my hope in, in that 97%. Um, because I know deep in my heart, the voice will never, never leave this country, never leave it, uh, for anyone. It'll always be here. So, uh, if we were to go down this track, I mean, there's, there's a couple of good guidelines that we've already have in place that uh, have given us some way of looking at this through, not just through uh, our own personal eyes, but also through national eyes. I mean, the, uh, we have the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And uh, in that declaration there, there, there is some very, very important parts of that declaration that are really significant. These particular documents have been developed by Indigenous peoples, for Indigenous peoples, with Indigenous peoples, and enshrined there within the United Nations. And our government signed off on the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples back in 2007 or 8, uh, but hasn't been used. I know they're aspirational documents, we know that, but at least there are good guidelines as to how we would look at this particular issue of the statement of the heart. And so if we take those principles from the declaration and from those articles in the, in the declaration, including article three, which talks about self-determination, then, and take into consideration the hard work that's already been achieved by uh, uh, lots of our people here, we've got, you know, two major documents that have been developed to look at this particular uh, issue here. And so we've got very good people who have trying to help us to go th work through these particular processes so that we know what we're talking about when we get to this, uh, uh, to this place of uh, uh, recognition. Uh, if also, 
most of the times our voices have been heard through, through, through the legal processes. I mean, if you look at the Mabo decision, the Mabo decision made one of the most important uh, uh, declarations in, uh, in, in it when it declared that uh, uh, our people, particularly the Miriam people anyways, have the right to uh, possession, the basis of the importance of uh, sovereignty. And if you read the uh, Keating speech after the declaration, you'll see that he had a huge big challenge in front of him because of that declaration. And in that particular case, they set up four seats for the voice to be heard in Parliament, for the Maori voice. And then when I look back at our history, there was a call way back in the 19, from the 1930s onwards by people like uh, William Cooper, who said that this government should look at that representational act and start to implement the voice, uh, that similar kind of uh, arrangement here with our particular government. I mean, he even wrote to the, to the Crown and the King and all of these kind of things to try to get that voice heard. And so even though it might have been suppressed under the Aboriginal Protection Acts or under Terra Nullius, we can see that the voice has never stopped to exist in this country. It will never cease to exist. It will never be quenched. It will never be diminished. So we've got a long way to go. We're looking at this voice from a whole different range of ways through the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples for the two documents that have already been uh, developed and designed, the co-design pro programs, that the uh, documents that have been designed. We have the Statement from the Heart. We have the Maori uh, Representation Act. And we also have the basis of this uh, going forward in a few of the uh, major important decisions that have been made through litigation. And that one was the Mabo decision. And the other one was the uh, decision that was made in, in uh, Love and Trump versus the Commonwealth in terms of our identity and our uh, citizenship in this country here. So those, those particular acts have really spelled out very clearly uh, who we are in this country. I would really hope that we can say yes to the voice. Let's remember that my voice will never be quenched by anything. It has never been quenched. It has never been uh, diminished. We will always speak out. Thank you. So, Margaret, can I ask you the same question? Why is the voice of Parliament so important to us as First Nations people? So why, as a non-Indigenous person, do I support the call? It, it is a call for a First Nations voice to be enshrined in the Constitution. And what do I see as potentially the highly successful outcomes of, of a voice enshrined? For myself personally, I've taught what they've called Indigenous Studies for 30 years. And um, this has been so fascinating. If you think 30 years ago what was being taught in our classrooms and then over time, I've seen the emergence, even 20 years ago was when we began um, talking about an invasion of Australia, not, not a settlement of Australia. 
Um, we talk now talk about the frontier wars. We've now learned about a civil rights movement in Australia. Um, we've had an apology from a prime minister, and still this isn't enough. It's nowhere near where we actually need to be today. And so I think I would encourage every single one of us, we've heard about the 97%, every single one of us to familiarise ourselves with the Uluru Statement from the Heart. It is a stunning document and it's a call to a journey to find our hearts and the hearts of this country. It's a deeply spiritual document and Auntie Ali um, spoke about this you know, that the spirituality has not been broken. It's there and it's strong and it's powerful. And we all need to be listening to this. So the Uluru Statement, it's both personal and collective. It's spiritual and yet also pragmatic. And it's also political and strategic. And it's an invitation for all of us to walk together to find a pathway to justice and healing for a better future. So it's through the Uluru Statement um, that the call for a First Nations voice to be enshrined in the Constitution and for a Makarata Commission to be established has been made. So we've been listening carefully, as I said, to people like Uncle Glenn Lockery. They've been unpacking this for us um, and, and Uncle Shane Charles and others. Um, and Uncle Glenn, he tells us, um, when you look at the voice, treaty, truth, Makarata, in the centre, it's all about justice and it's all about people and healing trauma and strengthening custodial relationships. It's about finally finding autonomy for First Nations people. To enshrine this in the Constitution is to allow powerful decision-making and for First Nations people to speak for themselves, to find that justice for themselves and to guide the government in decision-making as we move forward, to understand that only 250 years ago, that 3% was 100% of the population of this country was First Nations peoples, only 250 years ago. Given that my grandmother was born in 1901, it's really only a few grandmothers back, right, to, a to that time. And so in a very short space of time, I'll just say quite honestly, the power has shifted. And so we need to be the people also speaking up. We need to also use our voice to support. A referendum, you've got to understand this, a referendum must be passed by a double majority. 3% of the population can't actually carry the referendum. It has to come from all of us. Let's continue the journey. Thanks. I'm now going to ask um, Jeff Scott to speak, um, who's been intimately engaged with the Uluru Statement and the Voice from the Heart for quite a number of years and still is. So if anyone on the panel can speak um, strongly and articulately and from an informed point of view, it's certainly Jeff. So I'm going to hand over to you, Jeff. Thank you, Des. Uh, I'd like to first just acknowledge where I am today. I'm on Raju country. I'm home. It's my country. I'm going to acknowledge and pay my respects to my ancestors, my elders, and my people, well, both for 
for my very existence and my spirit and their uh, their support today. Uh, the Uluru Statement, um, I think it's the most significant statement that's been made in the last 100 years in my point of view. It's finally a point where there's a process undertaken which acknowledged that we didn't have a voice. There were many issues raised that this has been a long history of trying to get a better, a better outcome for Aboriginal and Torres people around the country. Um, and this, this came up in the Referendum Council back in 2015, or part of that when it was established. We had five proposals on the table, and then we, we took those proposals around to Aboriginal people around and Torres Strait people around the country and asked them what they thought. And we had very much a substantive discussion. And after all those discussions, and there was uh, 12 regional dialogues around the country, I can go through details of that if people wish to, and then we held a national convention at Uluru in 2017. And we were a little surprised at what the outcome was in the end, but it was driven by the people that were there. I take the point from Uncle Ray, and I wish to acknowledge Uncle Ray and, and Andy Alley. And their views here were, we've always had a voice, but we're not listened to. So how do we get that voice listened to? And that was the point. And many people's lament of those meetings was getting that point, and that's what came out of the, the, uh, the consultations themselves. We've had many forms of voice over many years, but every time the government uh, thought it was okay, they would abolish it. But what was came out of the conference at, uh, at Uluru, and it's a very strong conference about it, was we want a voice. And it's a voice that's enshrined in the constitution that can't be removed, that will provide us with certainty and a real say in this country and acknowledgement. One that we, we, we exist and they, we're recognized as having the, the proper place in this country and to that we will have a voice. And that voice must be listened to. And when we started the voice journey, it was a point that we had to believe it was possible. I mean, structural reform and effective reform is not easy. You must believe. Many people didn't believe we'd win the election. Many people didn't believe we'd have a referendum. We have them. The statement from the heart was an appeal to the Australian people, not to the parliament. And that's the effective difference. And a constitutional question, a constitutional decision, and a, a positive one, is the decision of the Australian people that the parliament cannot overturn. We can't be subject to the machinations of the government of the day. We owe it to our, our next generation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children not to go through this again. Anyone who believes that spending $30 billion a year on, the, on Aboriginal issues and having you know, the lack of any de demonstrated outcome, I don't think can, that, that very fact is an indictment on us all. We can't let it continue. And part of the voice argument here is to do that. Our challenge on this process, should we get through the Constitution, no, no. when we get through the Constitution, I must believe, is that we design the voice and a voice that is capable of evolving, that's nimble enough to, to respond to the different challenges come to us in the future and to address the concerns around the country and to become a lobby for the voices, well, the voice of the voiceless. So I think having this is the most practical and the most effective measure we can take. Now, the, the, the Uluru Statement is the most debated research document I've seen for decades, many, many decades. And I think people see the, the power and the potential that's there. And we have many naysayers, we have many people debating it, and that's okay. Everyone's entitled to an opinion, we're a democracy. Everyone has an opinion, I just hope it's an informed one. There are many places who think the voice is too powerful. There are many who think the voice is too weak. There are many who want all the detail. What we don't want to do now is usurp the role of parliament. The role of parliament here should, when the referendum is passed is to actually develop legislation and the details of the voice. 
you know, those who want to actually say the parliament should be supreme and shouldn't be challenged, well, they actually want the media to develop the voice to uh, usurp the role of parliament. So I don't know what they're, no, they're just not, not supportive. They'll find any reason not to. There will be a voice, and that's because there should be one. They will provide advice to parliament because it's as a matter of right and best practice. The parliament will have the power over its makeup and powers because that's how our constitutional system works. If we aren't happy with the voice, we can organise to change it. We get it to make it work. There are no easy answers here, but the voice is a mechanism for, a re for a real and lasting change. And the voice will be a permanent authoritative institution to negotiate the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australia. And finally, after 233 years, we're taking this substantive step forward, real reconciliation, where First Nations will be recognised and respected and decisions will no longer be made without them. Without them. The treaty can't guarantee that. Truth-telling can't guarantee that. But a voice can. What a voice can always do is ensure that we have processes in the future where, where treaty and truth-telling are done properly. They are resourced properly. There's an oversight for them. Treaties know the countries we observe in their breach with no one to breach them. We have many, many truth-telling avenues going on now. We had the Royal Commission. We had the Bring Them Home report. We've had the, the Royal Commission into uh, the juvenile detention of the Territory. We had them every day. The NDIS, the bushfires, the banks. But no one is there to give effect to those recommendations and to drive them. And that's what a voice's job is. This will be, our, uh, well, in my generation, my last, the last chance we'll have. And we can't let it drift. The polls are now hitting it at 75% support. And that is phenomenal. We've held it up for the last five years, despite the fact that the Prime Minister at the time said no. As soon as he said no, we turned around and said, well, no, that's not good enough. We're going to keep fighting. And we have for the last five years. Now we've got a PM who said yes. We're on the road. And, so, and again, it was, that was an appeal to the head and the heart. And I'll make the point. The sequencing is important, having the voice first. We move from a, a country based on fear and hate to a, a country based on hope and vision overnight. The bad old days were three months ago. Let's look to the, look to the future. Thank you. Thanks very much, Jeff. Um, so I'll just take an opportunity to speak a little bit as well. So as people know, I'm from Alice Springs. I was born in Alice Springs. I was the last, virtually the last chair of the regional council in Alice Springs. Um, when Howard and Bruff made the announcement that they were going to abolish ATSIC, uh, one of the statements they made was they could, they, the government, could deliver better programs, better services to Aboriginal people and communities. So I resigned my little protest and I went home to a place called Wallace Rockall, 120 k's west of Alice Springs, and I was there for two years. And I can tell you, nothing changed. It actually got worse. And then a year after those two years, in 2007, uh, Bruff and his um, cohorts um, introduced the Northern, the Northern Territory Emergency Response, which became commonly known as the intervention. And I was on community at the time. I saw the women and children, you know, heading to the hills. I saw the army come into town and it was just appalling. And one of the comments the... Um, Bruff and that made was they were really concerned about the pedophile rings that were operating in men's bush camps. Um, there was a number of investigations um, and there was no evidence to back that up. But unfortunately what that did is it tarnished all black men in Australia 
um, as pedophiles, as drunks, as lazy, as wife bashers, a whole bunch of stuff. So as Jeff said, or finished off by saying, this is our greatest hope. You know, I've just um, retired for the second time, which I don't know whether it's going to last very long, but it's actually given me incentive to, to still keep a part of this debate. And going back to um, the 97, 3, 97% and 3%, we need you non-Indigenous people to vote for the referendum for, for First Nations. And then we can all heal together as a nation, not just us blackfellas, you know, we always, in my view, put out the hand of cooperation and, uh, and participation, but it, it's constantly slapped away. And the government and successive governments have demonstrated that, that they can just pull the rug out from any organisation that they funded, and that's what they did with that too, um, in my view. So this is the greatest opportunity for us. You know, we always, us blackfellas, we work in three-year cycles, uh, the election cycles. Um, so I've got great hope and great faith. And, you know, the 70-odd people that are on this call here, which a majority are non-Indigenous, I know, hopefully you'll show a bit of compassion because we can do this together. You know, this is not just about blackfellas. We can do this together and tell the truth about the colonisation of this country. Um, so I'm very excited and, you know, I celebrate every morning when I wake up because I've actually woken up. So it's great. So I'm going to be around for a few more years, hopefully. A big thanks to our speakers on the first episode of the Raising Peace podcast. Auntie Ali, Des Rogers, Uncle Ray, Jeff Scott and Margaret Hepworth. Thanks for listening to the Raising Peace podcast. For more information on upcoming events, including our events around Anzac Day and also the International Day of Peace on September 21, head to the website, which is raisingpeace.org.au. This podcast was made possible thanks to a generous grant from Beyond Vote Peace Fund. Edited by Glenn Morrow from Audiocraft and produced by Peter Griffin and James Cox from Raising Peace. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.